0: Genesis chapter 19, starting in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, no. We will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. But he seemed to his sons in law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside of the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me, and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold... The smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. You can take a seat. Let me pray as we... Look, as we prepare to look more deeply into this passage, Lord God, the nations rage against you. The peoples of the earth, those who have rejected you, they plot in vain. Kings of the earth and the rulers, they set themselves against you. They take counsel with one another against you, Lord, against your anointed. And Lord, why do we think that we can somehow rule ourselves and not submit to you? Lord, we know that you will not be mocked. You sit on your throne, in the heavens, and you laugh at our feeble attempts, Lord, you will speak your wrath. Lord, I pray this morning, as we encounter your word, and we, as we encounter the truth of your righteous and good wrath on unrighteousness. That we would submit ourselves to you, that lest you be angry with us and we perish, Lord, that we would take refuge in you. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. You know, a few years back, I came across this article. I can't remember what, what it was in, where, where it came from exactly, but I came across this article, and it was entitled, Should We Teach the Wrath of God to Children? An intriguing title. And so I had to read it. And the author, he introduces the article by telling this story about a season in his life in which he was writing a doctoral dissertation about the wrath of God. He was in seminary and the topic the topic of his dissertation was the wrath of God, and so he was he was working on it and One Saturday he said he was working on this dissertation, he was doing his research, uh, reading different passages and that sort of thing, and he needed to take a break because he uh, had volunteered to help out at church with a children 's event, and so he took a break from his studies, and he went to the church, and he was helping with this children's children's event, uh, uh, a children's Bible study kind of thing that was going on. And and he said that he was sitting in the back of it and listening as the the kids were singing, and they were being led in, in worship. And there was a song that they were singing, and it referenced God's anger. And after the song was done, the worship leader asks the kids this question. Asks, Kids, do you, do you think God ever gets angry? He says, in unison and to his dismay, the kids with unusual exuberance replied, no. Now, it could be true that the kids were conflating anger with sin. That would be easy to do. They knew God was sinless, and so God must not get angry, right? But... The reality is, for this guy who was researching the wrath of God in Scripture, he knew God does get angry. And the Bible clearly teaches that. And as I read the article and I continue to read what what he goes on to talk about, I couldn't help but thinking, I wonder how those kids... Uh, Their parents would answer that question if their parents were there. Would they say no? I couldn't help but thinking in most churches, is the wrath of God ever taught? The average church in America today, out of 52 weeks of the year, how many times is the wrath of God ever referenced? Frankly, in a decade of preaching, how many times is the wrath of God ever referenced? Should we be talking about it? What risk is there if we don't? And we learned last week that not only is God intending to bring judgment on the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he intends to teach Abraham something in that process about what is right and just. Remember, Abraham had just had a conversation with the Lord about this while he was standing Overlooking the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he, the Lord goes on his way. Abraham, said, you know, he goes back to his tent. Presumably he goes and he falls asleep. He gets up early in the morning the next day and he goes back to the outlook where the night before he had had this conversation with the Lord. What will he find? What will he find less than 24 hours later? Well, that story is broken up into three scenes that I just read to you. The first is what happens that evening when the two men arrive in Sodom. And we will call that God warns of his wrath. Scene one, God warns of his wrath. The second scene is this. It's what happens right at dawn, right before the sun comes up. And that scene we'll call God preserves his people. And then the third scene is what happens shortly after sunrise. And that scene we'll call God displays his judgment. And God warns of his wrath, God preserves his people, and God displays his judgment. Those are the three scenes in this story. And from this, this is what I want you to to walk away with. You walk away with nothing else. I want you to understand this one thing. Christian, don't love what God will destroy. Don't love what God will destroy. So look, let's look at this first scene. God warns of his wrath. The first thing we see in verses 1 through 3 is that these that two of the three angels, right, two of the three men come to Sodom. Notably, the Lord does not. A Lot happens to be out at the gate, and most likely this is because he's an elder of the city, and the elders of the city would sit at the gate, and as people came along, and maybe they had troubles or, or different things going on, these elders would make judgments Right, They would give wise counsel for them, and so they would do this at the gate of the city. And so that's where Lot is, and he sees these men coming up to the city, and it says that he, just like Abraham did at the beginning of chapter 18, he runs to them, and he bows to them, and he extends hospitality to them, which would be normal in that ancient world, right? But they refuse. The angels say, no, we'll we'll just camp it out here in the town square. Why would they say that? Well, we'll soon see why Lot tells them that's a bad idea. But it's safe to assume that these angels knew that that was a bad idea. And that's why they refused the hospitality, because they were making a point. they were making a point. Remember, their purpose of going to the city is to see if it has become as wicked as what the Lord has, has come to the ears of the Lord, if you will. And so Lot presses them and they eventually relent and they enter Lot's house. And Lot, you know, it's the whole washing the feet, the making of the feast, the preparing of unleavened bread for them, the the whole hospitality deal they get again from Lot that they got from Abraham. And then we see this small shift in verse 4. It says, before they could lay down, before the evening was done, the men of the city, and it's very specific here. It says, all the men, young and old, to the last man, surround the house. And their intent is very clear. Where are the men? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. The implication of that statement is absolutely exactly what you think it is. Now, Lot, he recognizes how terrible of a thing this would be. He must attempt to protect his guests against this wickedness upon wickedness that they would like to do to these men. And so, in fact, he goes out and he begs them, do not act so wickedly. The point uh, that I want to draw out here, the implication that I want to draw out here is this, the wickedness of the world, it ought to be apparent to us. When a wicked world is doing wicked things, we ought to be able to go, oh my goodness, that's wicked. This forced assault, this forced sexual assault, this forced homosexual assault, these these factors, they build on one another in order to express the extent of the sinful depravity of the men of this city. Just how wicked the city has become. Christians, we, unfortunately, we don't always see the wickedness of the world for what it is, do we? Why? Why don't we? What, what happens? Well, let's continue in verse 8. This is what we see Lot say. Lot says to them, behold, his, his uh, way of getting them from doing this thing to these men is this. He says, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men because they have come under the shelter of my roof. Uh, Are the daughters not under the shelter of his roof? You see, Lot, who was being contrasted with the wickedness of Sodom, now offers his daughters as an alternative solution for these men who are surrounding this house to do to them as they please, to do to them as their judgment tells them. And we know what their judgment is like. It's not good, it's wicked. In order to protect these men and be a good host, he's willing to compromise his daughters and his duty as a father as well. His attempt to give what he thinks maybe might be a less wicked solution is, at best, still horribly wicked and is probably actually more wicked. Here's the implication. Complicity with the world's wickedness results in moral ambiguity, even for God's people. When we are complicit with the world's wickedness, when we, living amongst it, turn a blind eye to it, pretend it's not as wicked as it really is, that will result in moral ambiguity. 1 Corinthians 15.33 reminds us, do not be deceived. Good co- or bad company ruins good morals, Right? The more we compromise on this or that, the more we turn a blind eye, the more we justify and excuse what God says is unrighteous and unjust, the more difficult it becomes for us to distinguish between them. The men of Sodom, they're not having this alternative that Lot gives, they say, well, this, this guy's not even one of us. They, he, he's just come to sojourn amongst us, and then now he's going to he, come here and stand as a judge over us? Now, interesting, they had made him a judge. That's why he's sitting in the gate of the city, and yet now they say, who is he who would offer his daughters to us to judge us and what we're doing? There's at this point that the crowd then presses hard against Lot. And he seems like he's a goner, except for these two men, these two angels who are in the house, reach out through the door, grab him, pull him in, shut the door behind him, and then strike the crowd with blindness so that they wear themselves out trying to figure out how to get in the door. Not for the miraculous act of God, Lot would have been a goner. And so these angels, with the wickedness of the city having been clearly illustrated now, ask Lot, does he have anyone else, any other family, anyone that belongs to his household in the city because they are going to destroy it? It has been displayed. They are as wicked as their their, their infamy precedes them, right? And so Lot goes out to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters. And this kind of sounds weird, but most likely these men were betrothed to his daughters. And so while the marriage weren't, wasn't official, they would have used the same term sons-in-law for them. So he goes out to these sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters. And Lot relays the warning, uh, but they, it says they thought he was jesting. I thought he was joking. This is related to the, the idea of laughing at him. They didn't take him seriously. And why would they? Why would they? He just offered their betrothed to the crowd. You see, our moral ambiguity doesn't help, but rather hinders... Our warnings to the world. And listen, I'm not talking about, you know, oh, we we sin sometimes. Look, we all sin sometimes. And in in my experience with those who who are not Christian, the majority of them expect that we still sin sometimes, that we still mess things up. But when we say here that God's word is our standard, and then when it suits us and our selfish ambitions, we deny God's standard over here, that kind of moral ambiguity causes the world to mock us. One of the ways I've seen that play out, unfortunately, when I was a youth pastor is you know we I'd have a family and and the parents would be very strict with their kids or with their daughter about things like you know, uh, boy-girl relationships or what they're doing and and those things and a modesty and these other things. And, And not that those standards were wrong, but what was always interesting to me and what happened sadly occasionally is something would happen in the family. Maybe the dad would leave and suddenly the mom would find herself divorced and single again. And then all of a sudden, all of her shirts are a size smaller. And all of her skirts are two inches shorter. And her boyfriend is living in the house with her. And all of a sudden the rules change when it's her and not her daughter. And that kind of moral ambiguity, that kind of the rules are good for you, but they they bend for me, makes us a mockery in the world. So God warns us, and he's been warning us, and he warns us all through the Bible, and he sends his messengers. He sent his message to warn us about what is right and what is wrong, about his justice and his wrath, but he also preserves his people, and this is the second scene. God preserves his people. This debacle has apparently been going on all night. This scene has carried on these conversations with the sons-in-law and all the whole thing. And morning is about to dawn and the angels, they've been trying to get Lot to get out of the city. They've been urging him, take your wife and take your daughters so that you won't be swept away in this punishment because it is happening. And this whole thing, it connects back to the story of the flood, right? The idea of of destroying the valley is the same phrasing as God destroying the earth with the flood. And the the idea of being swept away, it's the same Hebrew phrase being used. And the idea of a righteous man and his family being saved, it's all meant to point us back, to remind us of the story of the flood, the kind of wickedness that engulfed the world there, has engulfed this valley, and God must do something about it. But what does it say? What's different? Here, Whereas Noah then trusted and obeyed and acted, here Lot lingers. He lingers. He goes and he warns his sons-in-law, the city is going to be destroyed. But when they say leave, because we're about to destroy the city, suddenly Lot pauses. He doesn't want to go. And we read this and we think, Lot, you are crazy. If I was Lot, man, I'd be the first time they say get out of the city, I would be high tailing it. Two angels just struck a cloud, a crowd blind who wanted to rape them. And they say, get out of the city, and you're lingering. What? But let me ask you this why do you linger? Why do you linger? You do. I can almost assure it. If you don't, you're more righteous than me, I'll tell you that. Why do you linger in watching a show when you know it's not honoring to God? Why do you linger when you're convicted? I ought to to watch this, but it's pretty entertaining. Why do you linger with your eyes when a picture comes across your phone that you know you ought not to look at? Why do you linger in a conversation that you know full well is gossip? Why don't you just leave? Why don't you get out of town? Why do you linger in feelings of hate and animosity even after someone has sought forgiveness for you and you let it stay there? Why do you linger? Why do you linger in the midst of what you know is sin? Let me tell you why. I'll tell you why you linger. Because you've grown to love the world. That's why you linger. And that's why I linger. Friends, do not love what God will destroy. So what do the angels do? It says they seize him, they seize Lot, and they seize his wife, and they seize his daughters. That's a strong word. The idea we get is that they literally are dragging them, they're forcing them out of Sodom, and they set them outside of the city, and it explicitly says that this act is the mercy of God to them. I wonder, I wonder if when they got out of the city, if they were kind of like, Ouch, my wrist. How dare God do that? Encroach on my freedom? Make me leave the city? Listen, I've, I've, uh, unfortunately, I've uh, known people, well, I guess in one sense, unfortunately, in one sense, fortunately, I've known people who have been caught in the early stages of some sin. Maybe a relationship, as an example, with a woman that isn't their wife, that's turning emotionally, relationally inappropriate. And and then they're already in sin. They're flirting or they're exchanging text messages or whatever. And they get caught in the midst of it. And of course, they're already in some sin there. And so there's consequences to that. There's consequences because they lingered in the first temptations that happened. And that that turned into the first sin and then it turned into a second sin and it continued to snowball and, and it started to pick up steam until suddenly something rips them violently out of that stream of sinfulness. God had ripped them out of that city of destruction. And it doesn't feel good. And in the early stages of that situation, even if they confess that, yes, that indeed was sin, and I ought not to have been doing that, there's still this kind of why me attitude. Ah, Why? This is so painful. And somehow, even though it's their sin, somehow they're asking, well, why me? Why is these hard things happening? Why these terrible consequences? But what I've seen is when people truly repent, truly repentant people in that, they come to realize that their being caught in that moment was actually the mercy of God on them. They realize just how bad that situation could have gotten and how much more consequences they could have brought on themselves and on their family and on their community around them. They see their sinfulness And where they were headed more clearly. And they see the judgment and consequences that could have happened. And they thank God for his mercy. And grabbing their wrists and pulling them out of their Sodom. At the same time, I've also seen others struggle. Struggle to see God's mercy. Because all they can see is the consequences in their life. Consequences that they've brought on themselves with their sinfulness, but that's not how they see it. And it doesn't turn out very well. And Lot, friends, is one of those people. Look at his response. The angels, having just forced them out of the city so they won't be destroyed, they instruct them. What we want you to do, what you need to do is you need to escape to the hills. And until you get to the hills, we're not going to destroy this valley. But once you don't look back, because if you look back and you come back, you're going to be destroyed with it all. So just go straight to the hills. And, and, and Lot says, he, he affirms, you've saved me from the city. But then he says, but I can't go to the hills. I'll get destroyed on the way. And listen, Lot's concern isn't that he can't run fast enough. Lot's concern is that, oh, I can't make that journey. Lot doesn't trust that God won't destroy him. That's what it, look at what he says there. He says, Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. The angels have just told him, go to the hills, you'll be fine. Lot says, I don't trust that. I don't trust that. Let me go to this little city instead. Let me have it my way. And the angels, they... They relent. Say, okay, have it your way. Go to the city. They grant him permission. But what we'll see next week is that that doubt, that seed of doubt right there causes immense destruction in his family. Immense. But here's what I want you to know today. God does his part to be faithful to his people. Even though Lot has this doubt, even though Lot isn't uh, completely listening, he lingers, he refuses to go to the hills, even still, God is faithful to his people. 2 Peter 2, it it talks about this scene, and it says this, starting in verse 6 there. It says, if by turning... The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he, God, condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptations and to keep the unrighteous under punishment, until the day of judgment. You see, friends, God is able. God is able, even as you may at times linger, to keep you from temptation. God is able. Not to keep you from temptation in terms of you may never sin. He can if you would trust him. But we all linger at times and but the point is that God can rescue you from the sin you are in and keep you in Christ until the day of judgment. He can keep you in Christ until the day of judgment, just as he is keeping the unrighteous under punishment, it says. Too often we think that God is allowing unrighteous people to continue in unrighteous things right now and somehow rewarding them for their unrighteousness. But this passage says, no, in their unrighteousness, God has them under punishment right now until the day of judgment. It's not merely that I will judge them one day, but I have them under punishment right now. Romans 1 says that the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness right now. So even if it may look one way to you, I want you to know God promises he doesn't allow those things to go unpunished. And listen, if you want to stay Christian in unrighteousness, then you will be punished for it right now. There will be consequences in your life. It's not as if the wicked are secretly getting the good stuff. And us Christians just got the raw end of that deal until heaven. No, what the Bible consistently says is that sin will kill your life. It may look good, but it is rotten in your stomach and it will destroy you. That lie that somehow that wickedness is the good stuff. That's the lie of the serpent in the garden. Doesn't it look, doesn't the fruit look so good? God knows. God knows that you're unfaithful sometimes. God knows that you screw up. And that's why his entire plan is predicated not on your faithfulness, but on his. On his. See, when we do ungodly things, we are destroying God's good design for the earth and for his people and for us. And it has consequences. Friends, don't love what God will destroy, but God will and God must judge those things. And this, this is the last part we turn to now. The last scene, God displays his judgment. We get to the crescendo of the story. The sun comes up. Lot makes his way to Zor. And God destroys the valley entirely. And God destroys Lot's wife. Because she stays behind. Because she looks back. She turns back because she loves What God will destroy. God displays His judgment. And so we have no doubts that He will judge the world in its entirety one day. Don't be so silly to think that when the Bible says that God will judge everyone, that somehow God's bluffing. His hand is flush with all the cards. And when he lays them down, that's it. But there's one more aspect that I want you to see here. Abraham, it says, comes back to the scene. He comes back to that overlook, and he and we and we can't forget the two purposes here: that God is going to bring just, justice on this valley, and He's going to teach Abraham about what is right and just, so that Abraham can teach his children, and his children's children, and his children's children's children. It hasn't been 24 hours, and he goes back to the same place, and it is destroyed entirely. And the point of that passage in Second Peter 2 is this, that... that not only for those men and women in Sodom and Gomorrah who were going about their business, and then one morning they were destroyed, not only for those people in Noah's day who were going about their business, and they thought, no, it ain't gonna happen, no, it ain't gonna happen, and then they were destroyed, so too one day God will come like that, and he will destroy it all, and that is the end. He will destroy every wickedness, and if you're found among the wicked and not among those who are in Christ, I want you to know, and I don't say this with any meanness in my heart, I say it with the utmost love for each one of you, he will destroy you as well. And the only means of salvation is the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the power of God to save. Listen, there were not ten righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. There was one, and even the one had issues, and yet still God saved him. God displays his judgment, first so that we will know that he will judge the world, but also he does it so that we know how to promote justice in the world. While we know that we will never be able to bring true and perfect justice here, we can trust that God will. And even though we can't do it perfectly, we can act according to the justice of God in the world we live. And we can influence, that should influence our personal conduct. It should influence how we work in our communities. It should influence everything that we do. So listen. How can we, in the generations to come, how can we keep the way of the Lord if God's judgment and wrath are and wrath is missing from our sermons and from our devotions and from our worship music and from our discipling of our kids? How can we do it? How can we do it if there's a giant void in who God is that we just never talk about? If we for. Generations widely ignore God's holiness and righteousness and justice besides just a passing comment about it. Is it any surprise that Christians struggle to rightly identify what true biblical justice is in certain situations? Is it any surprise we're more concerned with appeasing people than upholding what is right? Is it a shock that we often allow one another to stay knee deep in sin? And say, well, I just don't want to be mean to them. Is it any surprise that people wake up one day and realize, by the standard of morality that we teach, that the world is awful? But then they blame God for it being so. Because in our effort to project God as loving... We've not taught them that God really does punish evil and is punishing it right now. Why is it so important for us to teach God's wrath? Friends, so that we don't love what the world, or we don't love what is in the world that God will destroy. I'm end with this example. Listen, if you don't educate your kids, the world will. I'll say it this way, actually: if you don't educate your kids, the world already is. We'll see that next week in the conduct of Lot's daughters. Recently, recently legislation passed in. Uh, Florida and the Florida Congress restricting public schools from teaching young children about issues uh, around sexuality. I'm not an expert in, in um, legislation by any stretch of the imagination, but, but it seems that this would put more uh, of the say back in the hands of, of parents. And I want you to know, and I've said this before parents, you are responsible for your kids. No one else is. No one else is. You are ultimately responsible. You are their primary discipler. And especially dads, the responsibility is on you and moms as well in helping the dads with their plan to do so. But something interesting happened in this. Disney, which is obviously a big presence in Florida, right? Disney caught some criticism for not being more outspoken about this particular bill. And uh, my point isn't so much, well, I'll just say this first. In response to that criticism, the CEO of Disney sent out a memo to the, his employees, and I want you to hear something that's in here, okay? I want you to hear this. It said, quote, this is from the CEO of Disney, quote, I want to be crystal clear. I and the entire leadership team unequivocally stand in support of our LGBTQ employees, their families and their communities, and we are committed to creating a more inclusive company and world i believe the best way for our company to bring about lasting change is through the inspiring content we produce the welcoming culture we create and the diverse community organizations we support his point in quote his point is to excuse his lack of outward outspoken opposition to the bill, to his employees, but in doing so, he reveals something, does he not? He reveals expressly that part of their intent, part of his intent, in the content that they create is to support a particular agenda particular way of looking at the world, a particular set of moralities that is in opposition to the Bible. Now, my point is not here to say, well, you must ban all of their content. If you have that conviction, then by all means, Abide by that conviction. But that is not my point here this morning. My point is twofold. First, for you personally, it's a problem when we are more repulsed by God's judgment on Sodom than the immorality that's celebrated and pushed on us in cute little packages. That is a problem. We need to be able to distinguish those things. Second, People intend to teach you and your kids stuff, and you need to know that. And you need to pay attention to what you're learning. This CEO is explicit, and even if it's not an expressed or conscious purpose, everyone has a worldview, and their worldview will infiltrate whatever they are creating Do you know what worldview you have? And do you know it well enough to distinguish between yours and theirs? Do you know it well enough to teach your kids? What's the risk if we don't teach about God's judgment and wrath? Who will deliver the message of God's judgment and wrath? And how will we heed the warning? Jesus was clear. He declared that on the day of judgment, it will be more bearable for those in Sodom than those who saw and heard the good news of his kingdom firsthand and rejected it. What's the risk if we don't teach about God's judgment and wrath? How if we don't teach about that, how will we know about God's incredible love and mercy? Or Ephesians 2 does say, we, we We Christians were children by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Let me pray.